The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, April 2nd, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Trump border shutdown. Trump healthcare showdown. Trump bombast slowdown. This, the gist, is of course a show of politics and policies. And we are under no obligation to cover everything. But what we want to do is bring you the important things. And I think it's notable that I have felt no real inclination to focus on either of those supposed policies. Now, I'm not under the delusion that when I send out the gist signal, it affects really anything. But I do think the most notable aspects of those two proposals is just how unnotable they are. Oh, they should be. We should be freaking out. We should be saying, shut down, shut down the border. That's going to destroy commerce. How could you do that? How could you think of it? Consider the havoc for so many Americans. Except it won't. Because Donald Trump is a deeply unserious person who won't get it done. Am I being complacent? Well, it gets back again to that gist signal. I don't think I have a huge ability to actually affect the experiment. Heisenberg would be proud. But I'm on JustCon 4 with, with these two announcements. Watchful waiting. An insanely stupid policy choice paired with an administration with poor follow-through and little to no skill at execution Add in the bluster to deed ratio of the president, which is out of control as to be bordering on the imaginary. And I mean that in the mathematic sense, because when the denominator of a fraction is zero, the number becomes imaginary. So like the serenity prayer says, I have the serenity to accept what I'm powerless to change. I have the courage to change what I can. I have the wisdom to know the difference. Now, I, I know that anytime you use the word wisdom in close association with Trump's new initiative or Mick Mulvaney-backed proposal or state attorney generals suing over the ACA, it's dicey. It's dicey, but it's not necessarily a fiasco. And between dicey and a necessary fiasco, I have the wisdom to know the difference. On the show today, a spiel that comes right out of my interview, the person I'm interviewing, though the subject of what we're talking about in this upcoming interview will be a little bit different. To understand, you have to know that I'll be talking to Nicholas Christakis, who directs the Human Nature Lab at Yale University. Now, if you know the name Nicholas Christakis, a few years ago, some undergrads screamed at him in the quad and they called him disgusting and he should be fired because they did not like his wife's opinion on Halloween costumes. That's neither here nor there, but for this. Christakis is an expert on society. His new book starts out with a chapter on dangerous mobs, not one from New Haven, but one from Greece in the 1970s. And he considers all the ways that societies and humans can go wrong. But then he ultimately concludes that it's more likely that we'll go right. So it's a kind of optimism forged in fire. Here, listen to me talk with Nicholas Christakis. What do a diary written in penguin blood, a virus that turns ants into zombies, and the kind of deal you'd have to strike to satisfy a Paraguayan farmer versus a Kazakh herder, what do they all have in common? Well, much like the first six-letter word among the hundred most used words in English, the answer is people. Actually, it's not really people because a couple of those are ants, aren't they, and penguins. The answer is society. It's all about how societies come together and cohere or don't. 
in the case of the ants, a new book called Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society, connects all these strands. It's written by Nicholas A. Christakis. Hi, thanks for coming in. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me. I just am really touched that you picked all those crazy examples because I've tried very hard in this book to give many vivid examples of the phenomena. If, we're someone writes, if someone on a shipwreck writes a diary in penguin blood and you don't include it in the book, you have not done your job. <laughs> <laughs> and on the margins of newspaper that washed up on shore with them. Yeah, yeah. So why are you talking about shipwrecks? Because they are, I guess, what you call a natural experiment, a microcosm of how societies are remade uh, in a hurry. And what do they teach us? Well, I mean, the book sort of tries to correct what I perceive to be a scientific body of work that overlooks the good in society. So for far too long, in my view, scientists have been emphasizing our propensity to tribalism and selfishness and hatred and violence. And they have overlooked our equal tendencies, which natural selection has shaped, of love and kindness and friendship and teaching. And in order to make the claim that natural selection has shaped human beings to make certain kinds of societies, in an ideal world, we would love to do an experiment. So in an ideal world, what we would love to do is take a group of people who were infants, who had been uh, not exposed to any culture, Mm -hmm. uh, strand them on a desert island, and let them leave them to their druthers and see what kind of society they make when they're adults. Now, of course... We can't do that. It would be unethical and cruel. And for these reasons, that's been called the forbidden experiment. It's been called the forbidden experiment for a very long time. So as I was looking for natural experiments in social order, I wanted to see what kinds of social systems would people produce if they were trying to make a social system from scratch. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so, so the book opens with a set of examples of shipwrecks. And what, what I was able to do was to look at all the shipwrecks between 1500 and 1900. And I got all the records and the archaeological excavations of the wreck sites and uh, tried to make sense of what, what kind of society did these wrecked crews make. Yeah. So with the shipwrecks, give me a couple of good, if you want to survive a shipwreck, what do you need? You need a good leader. Meaning what? So leadership is important. I don't think it's the most important thing. The book is an extended argument about the origins of goodness in society. It's an argument about our our common humanity. It's an argument how the world over, there's certain fundamental traits that all human beings share. These traits are individual identity, uh, love, friendship, social networks, cooperation, mild hierarchy, Mm -hmm. in-group bias, and uh, teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. Now, the mild hierarchy is important because we as a a species, we we like leaders, but we don't want our leaders to be too powerful or too aggressive. There's an argument as to, in the past, if such individuals got too much power, we banded together and killed them. So we, but we also don't want totally egalitarian groups. We want a little bit of leadership. So the, the shipwrecks that fared best were those in which there was a leader. For example, one of the wrecks, the, the, the wreck of the Grafton in 1846 in the Auckland Islands, uh, south of New Zealand, north of Antarctica, this was an inc- extraordinary uh, success story of these five men survived for two years, eventually were rescued. One of the things that they did is, is they, they built a little school in which they taught each other things. And one of the beauties of that was that in teaching each other things, they alternatively took, alternately took turns being pupil and teacher. 
And I could tell that particular example was very exciting to yes. you because within this natural experiment, there was this other experiment because at the same time that shipwreck was happening on that island, yes. there was another shipwreck on yes. that island. Yeah, it was <laughs> unbelievable to stumble on that story. So so on the Auckland Island, while the Grafton wrecks in 1846 on the southern part of the island, on the northwestern part of the island, approximately at the same time, the Inverco wrecks, stranding 19 men there. And while the five men that... All survived, were rescued, had an extraordinary experience among the Grafton. Among the Inverco, only three of them survived. There was abandonment. There was uh, cannibalism. There was a kind of um, selfish uh, leadership shown by the captain of the Inverco. So very different contrasting stories, almost a perfect natural experiment illustrating some of the principles of the book. The enemy of my enemy doesn't turn out to be my friend, even though the expression says it does. Yes, Yes. Why is that? So one of the things that the book also tries to do is it tries to provide an account for, despite this kind of very optimistic gloss that the book presents, highlighting friendship and cooperation and teaching and love and so forth, it's clearly the case that there's a lot of evil in the world. Mm -hmm. So it also tries to provide an account for why those horrible things, what role they might play or how they might counterbalance or intersect with some of the good things I've discussed. So the so one of the things I struggled with is why do we have the capacity for animosity? Why do we have enemies? It seems maladaptive. It would it would yeah. it was why generally you yes. know unless we're good at smelling out someone who does us harm, but that's not really how enemies always work. Correct. Yeah. Or more generally, first of all, let me step back and say why do we have friends at all? Other species don't have friends. Some so, do. Some do. Yeah. Elephants, I talk yeah, about in the yeah. book. Dolph- uh, dolphins <laughs> and orcas, certain uh, chimpanzees and certain primates. So it's very unusual. We're very unusual as a species in that we form friends. That is to say, we have long-term, non-reproductive unions with unrelated individuals. So so first of all, the problem is how to provide an account for why we have friends. A distinct then topic becomes, well, okay, so you can explain why we have friends, why it serves its purpose, and I go into that in the book. But then why do we have enemies? Is there a reason that you have the brain power to remember mm-hmm. who your enemies are? That is costly to you to do that. So you don't just remember your friends. You don't just have friends. You also have enemies. Yes. Some would advise to keep them closer. Yes. 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 <laughs> yes. Yes. So I attempt to provide an explanation for that. And and, and and part of that work, what we do is, is we map the social networks of 176 villages in Honduras. And uh, we map these networks, and we also ask people to identify who their enemies are in a certain way. And then we look at the structures of that, and we test some of these old ideas about your friend of your friend is your friend, and the enemy of your friend is your enemy, and the enemy of your enemy is your friend, and so forth. And we find, in fact, that the enemy of your enemy is not your friend, is actually probably your enemy. And the reason for the misunderstanding the best way I can explain it is the following way, is that friends are so much more common than enemies anyway that when you take into account the higher prevalence of friends in a population, yeah. the enemy of your enemy is people think is your friend simply because friends are more common. Once you take into account that fact, there is no excess risk of your enemy of your enemy being your friend. Right, right, right. Since most people are, if they're going to be something, are going to be your friend. Are going to be a friend anyway. Yeah. 
Now, you know, you mentioned this. Honduras is the most murderous country in the Western Hemisphere. That has to be extrinsic to the yes. values of the people. Yes, has yes. to be forced on them by circumstances and government. But how does it show up when you map friends and enemies to do it in this place that's rife with violence? Right. So I want to uh, take this opportunity to mention one thing, which is while the book is very interested in how natural selection has shaped human beings the world over and in what I regard to be these universal traits that human beings manifest that actually are good traits and that highlight our common humanity and our shared humanity, I am not ignorant of the important role of culture in determining human behavior from place to place. There's a lot of variation when you go from place to place. Yeah, yeah. That's in the book throughout. Yes. Maybe someone from our listening to our argument might not know that. Yeah. Yes. So, and the, and the metaphor I use, in the, and I'll come back to your question very directly, but just to set the stage, the metaphor I use is that, you know, if you're, if you're standing and you see two hills, one's 300 feet and one's 900 feet, you might be lulled into thinking that's a huge difference not realizing you're standing on a plateau at 10,000 feet. And actually, these two hills are two mountains. One is 10,300 feet. One is 10,900 feet. And they're not so different. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of the argument I make about culture. I'm not trivializing it. That would sound like I am. But what I'm saying is culture is a veneer on top of this deeper foundation. So the variations in violence that we see around the world are a veneer are a kind of surface difference where one country is different than another country in the levels of violence, which are primarily explained by culture. But Honduras, it's not my belief that there's anything different about the people there that makes them uh, certainly biologically not so, uh, more or less violent. Uh, It does have to do with a set of historically specific forces. Right now, to do with the drug trade, where the drugs are moving through that country and and creating a lot of violence. I mean— the different violent countries in Central America go up and down. Yes. And you can't convince me that Costa Rica, which is a really highly functional country, is so different from El Salvador and Guatemala, yes. except for mostly government. Yes, although Costa Rica is another is an excellent example. Costa Rica historically has had relatively good government, high health indicators. Yeah. It's been a sort of success story for a long time. It's also, and I was talking about this on my show the other day, it's it's of lower population, and yes. that correlates at least to functional government. Like, if you look at Uruguay, it is the most functional government in South America, and other than Suriname, French, Equatorial, right, is it Equatorial Guinea? French, French Guiana, and mm-hmm. other than French Guiana, it is the smallest, but it's also very heterogeneous. I mean, it's very homogeneous. Yes. Yeah, and that correlates to yeah, I mean, that's one functionality of the, and low crime. And honestly, that's one of the most depressing observations that I've reproduced in my lab, we didn't discover this, and that I talk about in the book, is that it's a very fundamental part of our our humanity, the fact that we, you know, prefer people that we resemble. And I don't mean physically resemble. I mean people of similar religion or or similar linguistic capacity or, or you know, language or whatever. So it's really depressing, yes. actually. And it turns out that groups, societies that are, uh, there's some evidence for this, that societies or groups that are more homogeneous, like you were saying, Costa Rica, don't have to deal with as much conflict. Okay. And here's my last question. The book ends with, I think it's literally on your second to last page, you use... The equivalent of theosity, which, yes. and tell me how you would pronounce sociosity? So it's theodicy yeah. and sociodicy. Sociodicy. Yes. Yes. Which is sort of your endorsement yes. Yes. of society. Yeah. Yeah. You so, finding society good. Now, here's my question, yeah. and I'll let you get into that. Why does it seem so unusual? Why 
when Frank Bruni writes his profile of you, he says, and, and still after all this, you're like Anne Frank or something. You find the goodness of people. I would think here we are. We haven't met in person before this. We're getting along. I'm sitting yeah. across from one of Time's 100 most uh, influential thinkers of whatever year you were named to that list. We're talking into these magical pieces of apparatus, which, you know, 100,000 people are going to be able to glean our insights. These are all like good things that are so apparent in our lives. And yet when we take a step back and are asked to assess it, hey, is society good or bad? As we sit here, we're 90 feet in the air in a magical building, I'm mostly talking about technology, but society made it possible. Possible, we say, yeah, society society's pretty bad, when most of the evidence of life is that it's pretty good. Why is that? Okay. So first of all, what I want to say is that it is absolutely the case that over the last 200 or 300 years, historical forces since the Enlightenment, the scientific discoveries, technology, even the invention, I would argue, of, you know, some of your listeners might not like this, but I think the, the, the invention of markets, I think, these are all things that have made people live longer, be happier, healthier, made us richer and better off. I mean, I think, it, as Steven Pinker argues, I think it's indisputable. But what I'm arguing in the book is that we don't just have to look to historical forces to provide an understanding of a good life that human beings can have. A deeper and more ancient power is at work. Natural selection has shaped us to have these good societies, despite our failings, actually. And as I mentioned earlier, if 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 all I got from you was violence and lies, yeah. I would never hang out with you. So it's a the, different podcast, different podcast, exactly. <laughs> so it, it, so the benefits of a connected life must have outweighed the costs. So the book, when you mentioned theodicy in theology in religion, people have struggled since time immemorial to provide an account of a beneficent God. How can it be the case that we have a beneficent or omniscient God? when there's so much suffering in the world. So theodicy is that branch of theology which concerns itself with the vindication of a belief in God despite the presence of evil. What I argue is is that we can also uh, imagine, and my book is a kind of argument about sociodicy. It's a vindication of the goodness in human beings and in our societies despite the presence of evil. And another metaphor, if I might use, is this kind of metaphor of a Japanese aesthetic. It's a, both a philosophical and an aesthetic principle in Japan of wabi-sabi, mm -hmm. which is a kind of respect for a flawed beauty, right? In a Western aesthetic, these perfectly symmetrical, beautifully formed pots are what we might want. But the Japanese aesthetic, part of the Japanese aesthetic is these, these flawed, seemingly rustic, which of course are in difficult to make, so they're really beautiful. And you look at them and you're like, oh my God, this is a beautiful thing. And it's its flaw that highlights it. And so, so I kind of see our society that way. You know, there's a kind of flawed beauty to human social systems that I find riveting, that I find reassuring because it highlights our common humanity that shared the world over and that I find um, fundamentally good in the end. Nicholas A. Christakis is the author of Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. That was quite a conversation. And now the spiel. So you may have noticed that I didn't engage Professor Christakis on that incident. The students who yelled at him uh, on the quad called him disgusting, just screamed at him for a long, long time. We only saw a fraction of that screaming. He stood there. He tried to listen. Most people who saw the video were kind of appalled at the behavior of the students. What happened to the students? They got awards at graduation for, quote, exemplary leadership in enhancing race and or ethnic relations at Yale. I read the citations. 
It seems that the uh, two award recipients had, in fact, done some exemplary work in the areas of studying racial representation in literature. And uh, one of them served as the past president and social justice chair for the Black Student Alliance. I don't know if they were making a point. I don't know if they were overlooking this one incident that made them famous. I don't know if infamy in my eyes is legitimate fame in Yale's eyes. I do know when I read that they won awards for enhancing race and or ethnic relations at Yale, I found that to be a legitimate irony. Today, right now, students at Harvard University, and we've talked about this, are protesting Ronald S. Sullivan Jr. Mr. Sullivan is the first African-American faculty dean at Harvard, but what he did was he took on a new client, as lawyers do, and that client is Harvey Weinstein. Sullivan, by the way, was also the lawyer for the family of Michael Brown, who was killed in Ferguson, Missouri. Now, if you're wondering, okay, so he was perhaps uh, with a sympathetic client then, but maybe he's also often on the side of powerful men accused of sexual assault. It should be noted that he was hired by the prosecution to prosecute the former governor of Missouri prosecution for sexual assault. Yet residents of the house he oversees at Harvard say his taking on Harvey Weinstein as a client makes them feel less safe. I can't say how they feel either way. I can say that what I think Harvard should do is to listen to that concern and not dismiss it, but clearly state we have a situation of competing ethics. And as Harvard, we have to back the professor who takes on a client under the principle, this is what lawyers and law professors do. Harvard is still engaged in the, quote, climate review, and to my eyes, seem to be giving a lot more credence to the students, who, again, should be free to express their opinions and try to change people's minds, but this is a case of competing values, and it seems to me that Harvard is derelict in not sufficiently articulating what should be the values of a university. Now, for years, I have heard, you have probably heard too, I have heard tales of campus excess. Up until, I don't know, five or six years ago, I usually dismissed them. Sometimes they were lumped in the category and it's kind of a lazy name, political correctness. But I did kind of dismiss them. Not as mere stories. I didn't think they were untrue. I just thought they were outliers. I thought they were the kind of anecdotes that were seized upon to paint an inaccurate picture by people who were motivated, people from the right. Now I think they're the kind of incidents that are seized upon to paint a more or less or at least more and more troublingly accurate picture, often from people on the right, but also people in the center and people on what used to be called the left. At some point in the past couple of years, the sheer accumulation of these stories begin to strike me as something not to dismiss. The other thing that happened during this time is I began to be paired in the workplace with adults, young adults, who are recently students at many of these institutions, and I began to take the the stories more seriously. Not that here at Slate, we have a bunch of snowflakes walking around who don't know how to think or don't know how to react, but it is clear that you can surmise what kind of environments of learning that many of these former students come from. I don't think this issue however you want to define it, Uh, you know, political correctness, like I said, is the lazy term, hypersensitivity on campus. I don't think it's the fifth or 11th or, you know, 17th biggest issue in our society. But I think 
It's a real issue. I think the outrage stoking is real. I think the strict enforcement of codes of sensitivity is real. I think that prioritizing the worth of an idea by considering the promulgator's oppression is a real thing and not a good thing and not a rare thing. Now, I do keep in mind the fact that the plural of anecdote is not data. But context, always important, can also be used as a cudgel. Sometimes when a lot of disturbing, unjust things happen, it is useful to say, you know, this doesn't really add up to a trend. But sometimes it's less than helpful to dismiss this accumulation of disturbing, unjust things as less than a trend. Let us take a couple really disturbing things, way more disturbing than what we're talking about. School shootings. They're horrible. They're tragic. But it is true they're not much more of a trend than they have been since, say, Columbine. Let's talk about unarmed black men being killed by the police. Want to guess how many of those incidents occurred in 2018? The Washington Post has a database where it tries to track all of them. So how many unarmed black men were killed by the police in 2018? The answer is 17, 17 unarmed black men, which was lower than the year before, which was lower than 2016. So I guess we could say it's not a trend. Everyone is a horror. Everyone is a tragedy. But of course, they're also just anecdotes of disturbing unjust things. I am not for a second comparing an incident of campus intolerance to either of those horrors. But there really is no good database for garden variety injustices. And I don't think it's so easy to dismiss them as mere anecdotes or to dismiss them as exaggerated. Again, data isn't an accumulation of anecdotes, but if at some point a bubble doesn't pop and you add more bubbles, it becomes foam. And at some point, foam froths. Elite campuses seem to be frothing over. And the saddest thing is the poor oppressed campus conservatives. No, it's not. These guys act like members of the White Rose Society after they invite Milo Yiannopoulos to campus as an intentional act of provocation. And the saddest thing isn't that millennials are snowflakes. That's not true. The saddest thing is that very poor argumentation results. We're doing a disservice to our students by not making them think critically, even when it's uncomfortable. Ideas are pushed aside, and the status of the arguer is given most of the consideration. I'm a huge fan of arguments. I'm a huge fan of arguments that are tough. I'm a huge fan of arguments that I disagree with. I love to have my mind change. It doesn't happen a lot. It's a very exciting thing when it does. And you know, I encountered a lot of these kinds of arguments when I was in college in the pre-trigger warning era. By the way, trigger warnings... I don't think that's such a horrible thing. I think they're mostly just politeness. Like if a teacher is going to discuss rape, you might want to tell your students, if you've gone through this before, just know that's going to be the topic of discussion. Teachers have been using that technique for years. And microaggressions. I think microaggressions tend to fall in three categories. There are actual, I don't know, aggressions, but there there are some statements that are actually statements or acts of bias we shouldn't engage in. Then there's the second category, which are questionable, might be acts of bias. So why don't you think about those things? And then there is the nonsense that no one should be upset about. There is a popular list of microaggressions. This one's uh, 12 years old. And Daryl Wing Sue, who popularized the term microaggressions, put it out with some other psychologists. And I think it's just all over the place. So they have a list of things not to say that maybe because it was put out 12 years ago, uh, I don't think there's any debate on phrases like Indian giver, that's so gay, she welched on a bet, I jewed him down, that's so white of you. I'm sorry, these are so antiquated, I, I even have to laugh. Other phrases like this that are microaggressions or just stupid, stupid things to say are, you're a credit to your race. You speak good English. 
Then they have a category called second class citizen. This occurs when a white person is given preferential treatment as a consumer over a person of color. Their example, having a taxi cab pass a person of color and pick up a white passenger. That, that's actually not a microaggression. That is a violation of federal law. Mm-hmm. There's a section called the myth of meritocracy where they list as microaggressions, I don't know, debatable statements. Like this is supposed to be a microaggression. I believe the most qualified person should get the job. Is that a microaggression or is that, you know, what human resources is based on? Here's another phrase that's supposed to be a microaggression. America is a melting pot. Microaggression? I mean, to me, this is literally a point to debate. You could say it's never a melting pot. We do a poor job of integrating immigrants in our society. I could say 20 years ago, 50 years ago is more of a melting pot. I could say the idea of assimilation has changed. Anyway, to me, it's a point of debate. It's not a microaggression. It being debatable, not as a microaggression, but just as a statement, it being debatable is exactly my point. It should be debated. It should not be a source of grievance. Think about how many debates you have ever seen and been edified by it and how many of those would now be considered beyond debate and not not because it's settled, but because to even consider the argument would cause harm. Jonathan Haidt calls this the coddling of the American mind. Comics go for the laugh and call kids soft. Vox says it's all a myth. Plenty of right-wing publications say it's making us vulnerable. I think it's part of the trend of catastrophizing what is actually manageable. Though I do view the trend after years of coming across these examples, I do view it as real, pernicious, and self-inflicted. I don't think it will be the death of us. On the other hand, one thing I know about pendulums is if they don't swing back, They're just dangly sticks. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Biennemi and Daniel Schrader only use the melting pot metaphor when literally talking about fondue. Of course, that is a bit of Swiss appropriation. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast, set a budget for remote recordings of $100. Luckily, I was able to Presbyterian her up to $150. The gist, I speak English as if it's my first language. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>